This week we begin our winter sermon series. Now, you're going to have to forgive me. I'm still getting used to these TVs myself. The brightness is a little weird. I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to read. I was messing with colors, and so I'd, I got to do more experimentation. So if it's hard to read the slides this morning in the church, I'm, I'm sorry. I will, I will be working on that. I, I wasn't expecting it. But anyway, we'll be walking through, uh, or walking with Jesus through the Gospel of John, asking one fundamentally important question. What does it look like to be a disciple and to be a church in the 21st century? We aren't going to be trying to figure out how to do things the way they did in the 1st century or the 15th century or whatever century we may prefer. This is about asking the questions that will help us realize, even remember, how to faithfully be God's people in the 21st century right now and beyond. What does it mean to us today that the Word became flesh? Why did Jesus turn water into wine? We'll be looking at the serpent on the stick, the Samaritan woman, the healing at the pool, and many more adventures of Jesus and his disciples as we make our way through this gospel. This will take us up and through Easter, ending with a chat around a fire and a discussion about feeding sheep. As we journey with Christ through these texts, it is my hope and prayer that as individuals and as a church, we will have a clear answer to the question, What does it look like to faithfully live the gospel? I'm looking forward to this journey that we will take together. I haven't preached through a full gospel yet, and so this will be a bit different for us, for me, where we're not going to walk through the whole book verse by verse, but do more hopping, skipping, and, and jumping as we progress. And though we won't be able to take in all of the great content of John in this particular series, we will be starting at the beginning with some of my favorite content in the whole book. The beginning of John is fantastic and and such an encouragement. These are some of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. In these verses, we see the Trinity at work. We see the light of Christ penetrating the darkness, and we see how the darkness is powerless to stop him. There's so much awesome in this passage that a part of me wishes to just, like, set up camp here for a few weeks But instead, we'll be taking a closer look at just one of the verses. Verse 14. Would you follow along with me as we read the text this morning found in John? We'll be reading uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. But if you do not, that's totally cool, as the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 
the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for his truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. A while back, my family and I took a trip to the Liberty Science Museum. It was a nice morning full of cars whizzing around a track, levers being pulled, water flowing, charts being examined. Our family had a blast, and I'd encourage anyone to, to go and do it. We ended our time there around lunch and wanted to grab some food for the trip home. Now, I'm not very familiar with that area of Jersey. I tend to stick to the, the main roads most of the time, unless I'm around home here, but, but we wanted food. So I pulled out my phone, and I found a, a nearby Chick-fil-A. Of course, I didn't realize that it was some not-so-easy-to-get-to mall in the middle of Jersey City when I started heading that direction. We ended up not getting food at that particular spot because it was impossible to find parking for our massive van. But on the way to the mall, we passed sites I had never seen before in my life. I've heard of gentrification, but I've never seen it like that before. I've been to places that have been gentrified, but I've never seen somewhere going through the process. On one side of the road were these chic, expensive-looking apartments, and on the other were dilapidated houses with full bars over their porches. Fancy office spaces would be right across the street from a rundown laundromat. People from two very different socioeconomic worlds would be walking on different sides of the street, and, and it was like they were actively ignoring the other. It, it was very weird. It was, it was absurd. And from one perspective, gentrification is a good thing. The point of gentrification is often to combat drugs and crime to make a place safer for its inhabitants. Areas that may be considered dangerous or dirty or underutilized by one demographic receives a facelift. That demographic feels safer living there, visiting there, walking their dog there. But with the newer houses, expensive restaurants, and the fancy shops comes a cost of living increase. Socioeconomic differences are, are magnified. Those that lived there before don't feel welcome anymore, are made to feel inferior, and are no longer able to afford to live in this gentrified space. Sometimes they are just flat out pushed out of the area that they had lived for so long. This place that had once been their home has turned against them. And they feel like, or have been told, that they no longer belong. People living in areas that are marked for gentrification are often made to feel like they aren't good enough to be there anyway, like they've wasted the potential of the place they have lived. The standards have been raised, and they've been made painfully aware that they no longer meet the standards, and so they are pushed out. Looking at the houses as we drove through those areas of Jersey City, it was pretty clear to me which side of the street I would rather live on. I'd rather live where I didn't feel the need to cover my porch with bars. But as I was reading our text this morning, I began to wonder where Jesus would have lived. The word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. In Jesus' time, his name was pretty popular. There were a bunch of little dudes running around named Jesus. His name translates to the Lord saves. And the people were living under Roman rule. They were not their own people. And they were looking for a deliverer. They were looking to the promises of God for the deliverance that he had told them that he would bring. And so many Hebrew mothers were naming their children the Lord saves. Probably as a reminder to themselves as much as a reminder to God that he could just keep that promise anytime, right? Just, just anytime. You can show up and, and do your thing anytime. And so when we see Jesus' name mentioned by others during his time, by contemporaries, there are so many that, that he gets the added title, Jesus of Nazareth. To differentiate between all the dudes named Jesus running around, they had to add their name town, or the name of their town where they were from to, to the end of their name. For some, this was a good thing, right? It showed their, their status. And for others, it was almost a warning. And so it was for Jesus. Nazareth, Nazareth was a backwater. It was seen as a lesser town. It, it didn't have a good reputation. The, the people that came from there were kind of sketch or, or sus, suspect, as they say these days. Jesus was born in a town in desperate need of some gentrification. Jesus didn't come to live among the powerful. He didn't come and spend his time among the affluent, the ones with the most money that would be able to fund his advertising campaign the most effectively. He didn't cozy up to, to those in earthly authority. He didn't find a place of security and comfort and begin to share his message there. He didn't build a house, a place of comfort, and wait for people to come to him. Jesus went to the people. He went to the needy. He went to the hurting he went to the discouraged and discarded. He lived with them. He dwelt among them. And this isn't a new thing for God. He wants to be with his people where they are, in the midst of their struggles and their joys and their lives. We see this clearly in the book of Exodus. God, through Moses, has, has taken the people out of Egypt and he has led them into the wilderness. And while they are camping out in the desert, Moses sets up a tent on the, on the outside of the camp far from the rest of the tents, and he calls it the tent of meeting. And this is where he meets God. When he enters the tent, the, the pillar of cloud that the people had been following would descend upon the tent, and everyone would know that Moses was meeting with God. But after a time, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, and he gives him instruction, the, the Ten Commandments. But more than that, he gives him instruction for a new tent, a tabernacle. And God has Moses place this tabernacle not on the outskirts of the camp, but right in the center of it. So that God would not be far from his people, but right with them, right in the middle of them. It's like the tent of meeting that Moses set up was the prophets, right? Like the prophets, Moses would, would get a word from the Lord in this tent that was separate from the people, and then he would bring it to them. But God didn't want to be separate from his people. So he had Moses build this tabernacle that he might dwell with them. Jesus is the tabernacle that God has come to dwell with his people. He doesn't want to be far from you. He wants to be with you. And so he comes to the hard places. He doesn't avoid the bad reputations for places like Nazareth. 
God doesn't avoid the bars on the front porches, but makes his home among them. And that model can be a hard pill to swallow, can't it? Christ is no longer physically walking this earth. One day he will come again, and and we're super excited about that particular day. But until then, the Bible tells us, as Dolores read for us this morning, that we are Christ's ambassadors here on earth. And so we are called to go to hard places. We're not called to cozy up to power, but to go to the needy and the hurting. We are called to be generous with the affluence that God has given us and to be with the people that he has called us to. And that can be hard. It can be uncomfortable. It can be kind of scary. The hurts of those we are sent to will sometimes mirror the hurts that we have been running from, reopening the wounds. Sometimes it's just too painful to have to live some of that again. Sometimes we need to get over fear and and prejudice. Sometimes we need to move past tradition and the way it's always been done. Sometimes it's too uncomfortable to be in the lives of people that on the surface are so different from us. Sometimes it's too uncomfortable because we realize that in our hearts we are the same. We can come up with many reasons why we don't dwell among the people God has called us to, none of which are good excuses to decide that we won't be ambassadors for Christ. So, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with embracing the hurting in the midst of our own hurt? How are we doing with being the ambassadors for Christ that God has called us to be? How are we doing with dwelling among the people to whom we've been called? As we wrestle with those questions, the pill that was hard to swallow becomes the pill that we choke on. For we realize that what is keeping us from being the ambassadors that Christ has called us to be are the bars over the porches in our own hearts. We find ourselves torn between what we know we should do, what the regenerated part of us is excited to do, and what our sinful nature pulls us to do, what we selfishly desire to do. More and more I have realized that driving down those streets in Jersey City was a metaphor for driving down the streets of my heart. I have areas of my heart that have been given a facelift. God has been at work and has been causing me to desire things, to pursue things that are better for me. Like reading his word regularly, like spending time with other believers that I might be challenged and encouraged through their stories and what God has been doing in their lives. God is giving me the strength to resist and fight the temptations of things that are bad for me, dangerous for me to pursue the things that he doesn't want me to be doing. But there is still the part of me that pursues that which is dangerous for me. I'm still a broken person who is unable to do life perfectly. There are areas of my heart that desire the sin that is bad for me, the sin that offends my God, but the sin that is comfortable. As Martin Luther put it, as a Christian, I am simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner, two sides warring against each other in my heart and my life. And this is where the gentrification illustration breaks down. Because that illustration, when used in this way, can make it seem like the people living in the gentrified area, the redone area, are more moral or better in the eyes of God than those living with bars over their porches. That is not my intent. There are sinners of both sides, on both sides of the street. 
Some of the sin may look different, but at the end of the day, there is no difference in the eyes of God between the people living on either side of that street that I drove down. Both sides need him. And that's just it, isn't it? That's, that's the whole point. We need him. And so Jesus came to be with us. He left the beauty, the perfection of the presence of the Father to come and live down here on earth. He did not forsake his divinity. He is still God. He is still a member of the Trinity, which is a concept we can never fully express. You know, I use the, the, the term, he left the presence of God. How can one be in the presence of one that you are? Ah, there's a lot there that I can't really even begin to understand how to unpack. But the reality is he left heaven. He left that world, that perfection, and he came down to earth, still a member of the Trinity, but he took on the frailty of humanity, fully God and fully man, that he might come down and live among us, dwell among us. The frailty that he took on was on full display when Jesus was betrayed, framed, and sentenced to death, death on a cross, the type of death reserved for the worst of the worst. And so Jesus carried a cross up the hill to Golgotha. But it was not just the cross on his shoulders. The heavier burden was our sin. All the things that we have ever done wrong, all the things that we are embarrassed about, the, the things that bring us shame and guilt, Jesus took all of it. And he was nailed to the cross with it, and he hung there with our sin on his shoulders. The Bible tells us that Christ became sin for us on the cross. And on that cross, he was abandoned by God in our place. And on that cross, he died. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, when we trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life, we put our hope in Jesus Christ, then we are saved. For Christ took our sin and died for it. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sinful rags that we have clothed ourselves in, but he sees the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that we have been given through faith. We didn't earn any of this. We can't be good enough for any of it, no matter how much we may want to think that we've gotten our lives in order. Each of us has a heart in desperate need of gentrification. We are in desperate need of God to work on us, shape us, inform us to his will, for our hearts will always lean towards what will hurt us. How thankful I am for a God that not only came and dwelt among us physically, but dwells with us still. Despite the bars on our porches, the defenses that we have put up, nothing stops his pursuit of us. The darkness of our thoughts and our desires does not scare him off. Though we are engaged in things that are bad for us, are, are dangerous for us, Jesus does not stop loving us. He does not stop calling us. And listen, I don't care which side of the street you think you live on or you think your neighbor lives on or which side do you think I live on? We all have work that needs to be done in our lives. There isn't any of us that have it all together. Every one of us is chasing after things that will hurt us and put us in danger. And so Jesus didn't just come for those that we may think he needed to come for. Jesus came for all of us. He died for all of us. We all have bars on our porches in our own ways. And Jesus came to take those down 
and to build in us a better way, a way that rests, that trusts in him. How thankful I am for Jesus, for the forgiveness that he pours out over all who believe. How thankful I am for his grace and his mercy. How thankful I am for a God that pursues us. Let us live this gospel. Let us go to those who are needy and heartbroken. Let us comfort the hurting. Let us ignore the house our neighbor lives in and focus on loving our neighbor and telling our neighbor about the Savior who loves them. The Savior who humbled himself and became man for them. The Savior who died for them. And the Savior who rose again that we might have a relationship with God. The Savior who dwelt among us and dwells among us still. Let us rest in these promises together this morning. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and amazing God we serve. Amen.